0: Tonight, the talk is about compassion and wisdom. It said that there are two great wings of the dhamma, or of the dharma. The dharma is the truth of how it is. The natural unfolding of phenomena, the truth of life, that's what the dharma, or the dhamma, is. To really see this, to realize the dhamma, is a profound understanding that comes from experience it comes from within it doesn't come from an outside source it comes from experiential understanding and it said that these two wings of the dharma compassion and wisdom need to be equally strong so that the great wings of the great bird, of the Dhamma, can fly, can fly to freedom so that the natural unfolding of the deep understanding of the natural way of things brings us to freedom. Without compassion, wisdom is not really experiential, not really from the heart. It's just intellectual. Without wisdom, compassion can lead to pity or to a grief that's never-ending, that's not really a healing kind of grief, leaving our hearts weighed down, heavy with suffering. So tonight I'd like to talk about how the courage and love that is compassion can help us come closer, be more intimate with life, and especially intimate with the painful experiences of life. Experiencing life with greater clarity and ever-deepening wisdom. When we do this, when we open to life with more clarity, when the heart is able to get closer, we see that from that wisdom arises. And from that wisdom that's able to see more deeply, more intimately, comes ever-deepening compassion. And so it continues the cycle of inner transformation. Compassion and wisdom affecting each other, affecting our hearts, affecting the ways we live in the world. We're all here because we have this common yearning, The spiritual yearning to connect with our hearts, to nurture that potential for wisdom. And we're here because we have some kind of faith, even though it's dim sometimes. We have some kind of faith that this is possible. Modern technology in our society entrains us to live in complexity and speed so we have little chance for depth in our lives. But when we come here, we give ourselves the chance to have this kind of silence, this solitude, so that sacred yearning to know ourselves more deeply, to know the hearts and minds and bodies of each one of us can arise, can be known beyond the daily strife of our lives, beyond the opinions that we have of ourselves, beyond the opinions that others have of us, we can be in the seclusion and quiet so that that stirring doesn't happen. It can settle. Beyond the planning mind, beyond our attachment to the past, we have this potential to realize liberation and then to live from that place in our lives. Because of this wholesome yearning that we have to realize the Dhamma, to be free from all the ways that keep us in bondage, we enter a realm of moment-to-moment awareness. This is our commitment when we're here. We enter it with spaciousness with a gentleness with a softness this is compassion but we enter it with as much clarity as we can this is wisdom when we do this the truths of suchness how it is are revealed and perhaps the meaning and purpose of our life is fulfilled maybe it isn't totally fulfilled We see many of us who have gone to different kinds of retreats over our lives. We see that bit by bit, we feel the fulfillment of our lives. In an old journal, I found a passage where I had written about this quiet desperation that I had, which Manindraji, one of my teachers, translated as spiritual urgency, this kind of quiet desperation, to realize something something deeper than my daily life could provide. This spiritual urgency actually has a word, a Pali word to it, It, and it is some vega, spiritual urgency. I couldn't articulate it at the time, but now in retrospect I can see that I wanted to understand life in a liberating way not just in a way that made it easeful for me, or in a way that gave a lot of pleasant experience, but in a way that actually liberated my heart and my mind from the bondage of greed and hatred and delusion. So I asked Manindraji at that time, I was very young in the Dhamma, in my 20s, and I said, what is the meaning of my life? what's the reason for my being alive? And Manindraji replied, to develop wisdom and compassion. And so that's where this reflection, this talk came from. At another time, he asked me, what is my goal in life? What is my spiritual goal? And the only way I knew how to articulate it at that time is to know what God is. I wanted to understand what this undeniably strong direction of my life was all about, feeling it from a very young age. When I answered Manindraji, to know what God is, he replied and quoted from the Beatitudes from the Bible, And he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall know God. He was trying to tell me that when the heart is free from all that obscures clear seeing, from greed, from hatred and delusion, that is the direct experience of this, whatever it's called, in different languages, in different spiritual traditions. And the one that I knew of called it God. So it's not merely knowing this experience in the head. It's a direct experience. It's not merely a concept or a word or a being, even a superhuman being or a super celestial being, apart from this body and mind uh, continuum. It's experiential. So he asked me at that time, is your heart pure? Is it freed from greed, hatred, and delusion? So at that time I had enough practice to know and to answer honestly, of course not, it's not. And so gradually through mindful awareness, through this practice that all of us are doing here, I came to understand that for me, the path to liberation was about this gradual lessening this purifying, this letting go of the habits and the tendencies of those habits, that suffering in my own heart and in the hearts of others, where that arises, could I be mindful of that? It's said that in every moment of mindfulness, there is some purification. So from the purifying of the unwholesome, States of mind, naturally the wholesome, non-clinging, love and wisdom arise. So for my own practice and witnessing others, I see this is true. This is not a myth. This is not theoretical. This is not something that's been stated 2,600 years ago, and people are still trying to prove. It has been proven over and over again. So like you, as challenging as it's been to do so, I've taken time for solitude and silence, to let go, to purify the heart, to pay attention to that sacred yearning for this sure heart's release, to put aside the complexity and speed of life and to dip into the simplicity and the slowness, and the quietness of life, to enter the depth of this moment-to-moment spacious awareness that we're all practicing. I love this poem by Mary Oliver. Sometimes the poets that talk about nature come so close to what we're feeling and experiencing on this path. So this is a poem called Entering the Kingdom. And for us, it's this moment-to-moment spacious awareness. The dream of my life is to lie down by a slow river and stare at the light in the trees, to learn something by being nothing a little while, but the rich lens of attention. So that's what we're doing here. The Sanskrit and Pali word for compassion is karuna. It means making the hearts of the good quiver when others are afflicted with sorrow. That's one of the definitions that I found. And many others are similar. The chief characteristic of compassion is the wish, the inclination to remove that suffering as if that suffering were our own. So we feel that when we feel the suffering in another, we see it. We can almost know how that is in ourselves. And of course, we want to do what we can. This is from Milarepa. Just as I intrinsically care for to heal a wound in my own leg as part of my body, Why should I not reach out intrinsically to heal and care for the wound of another, wherever it exists, as part of this body? What he's saying is, as part of this universal body. So it's the movement of the heart towards what is painful, the movement to alleviate that pain. We feel that in compassion. It's this natural readiness to help. Interestingly, with all this research done on meditation and the brain, it was shown that while meditators were doing compassion practice, it revealed that that part of the brain that is activated during this kind of meditation is the area that controls the urge to act. The quivering of the heart is felt there the urge to alleviate suffering. So these teachings, vast and comprehensive as they are, I think some of you have realized in your own practice that they've been handed down from generation to generation from the root teacher of this particular practice, the Buddha, handed down out of compassion, It is said that in the beginning, the Buddha wasn't going to share all that he understood. In that time of history, he wasn't sure that it would be received because he had a radical way of looking at suffering and the release from suffering, the liberation from it. But it is said, a celestial being beseeched him to do so, saying, there are those with little dust in their eyes. So there are those with the possibility of being liberated. And so, with his divine eye, the Buddha searched the realms of existence and knew that this was true. And so with great compassion, what is called Maha Karuna, great compassion, he began to share the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. Whenever I remember that, it's a powerful reassurance to me. It's a touching base with all those great ones, not just in this tradition of the Dhamma, this great tradition of of many traditions, really, of the Dharma. But in many traditions, there have been powerful teachings of opening the heart, opening wisdom. The compassion that the Buddha had to offer the teachings and then each one of the descendants of the uh, Dhamma, those who know the Dhamma, who share the Dhamma, shared with compassion. And so we feel that. We feel that we're connected to that great, wave of compassion that great energy it said that compassion is loving kindness actually that turns towards suffering it doesn't only turn towards suffering but it opens to it not just suffering in others but suffering in our own hearts as well it could be the physical pain of suffering it could be the heart pain like emotions, fear, anger, attachment, the pain of the past, the pain of a memory, the pain of worry of the future, sickness, old age and death. With compassion, when we see that in our own hearts, we know it's easy to face or it's less difficult to face we can open with tenderness and care and courage. One of the descriptions of compassion is the quivering of the heart. The heart quivers, of course, in response to what's painful, but it still goes forth to do what we can. Maybe it's just to hold that pain like we hold a crying infant Our hearts quiver because it opens to the vulnerability of the human condition. It can open to this vulnerability without drowning in grief or pity and get all helpless about it. This is called the near enemy of karuna. This kind of grief or pity, this kind of helplessness really. The far enemy is called cruelty. This is when we strike out because we can't stand the pain in our own hearts or in the hearts of another. It's difficult to take. When someone is angry or confused, it's hard for us to see their pain. So what we do is we strike out sometimes instead of waiting and seeing Just as it's hard for me, it's hard for them as well. So the near enemy is grief or pity, and the far enemy is cruelty, this kind of striking out. Or we may ignore what's going on. This is a kind of cruelty as well. When we ignore what's going on, this is kind of The hardest thing for me to be compassionate about when there are those who are ignorant about how it is in the world, ignorant about the pain of others or my own pain, it's hard to be compassionate. The hardest thing for me is to be compassionate towards ignorance. We can take skillful action, compassionate action, of course, offer what we can, when there's an absence of pity, when there's an absence of helplessness, when there's an absence of cruelty. We offer what we can, but we offer it with no attachment to result. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It just stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. Cruelty, striking out, hurting others with our words, with our thoughts, with our actions. This is an atrocity in our own hearts. Drowning in unending grief or pity for others or for ourselves. This is an atrocity because it makes us helpless. We can't really take action Or we may turn towards a kind of action that is not skillful when we're doing, when we're in this state. Compassion for ourselves and others prevents this from happening. I love this uh, little story that I read from Martin Luther King last night from um, Sharon's latest book called The Kindness Handbook. And he talks about this in his own way. He says, I think I mentioned before that some time ago, my brother and I were driving one evening to Chattanooga, Tennessee, from Atlanta. He was driving the car, and for some reason, the drivers were very discourteous that night. They didn't dim their lights. Hardly any driver that passed by dimmed his lights. And I remember very vividly my brother looked over and in a tone of anger said, I know what I'm going to do. The next car that comes along here and refuses to dim the lights, I'm going to fail to dim mine and pour them on in all of their power. And I looked at him right quick and said, Oh no, don't do that. There'd be too much light on this highway and it will end up in mutual destruction for all. Somebody got to have some sense on this highway. Somebody must have some sense enough to dim the lights. And that is the trouble, isn't it? Somebody somewhere must have some sense, must see that force begets force, hate begets hate, toughness begets toughness, and it's all a descending spiral, ultimately ending in destruction for all and everyone. Somebody must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate and the chain of evil in the universe. And you do that by love. Compassion is courage to do that. Sometimes it takes the greatest courage to respond with love when somebody is not nice to us or misunderstands us The hardest thing for me is being misunderstood. And the hardest thing for me is responding with love. I respond with defending myself or blaming others. But, of course, I'm learning. The hardest thing is courage to respond with love. But that brings in wisdom to face reality to face the reality of what's going on in this inner world, of what's going on in this outer world, without flinching. It's a tender-hearted willingness to face suffering out there, in here, and to say, this too is part of life. How can I shove this aside? We open and connect. We come close to whatever life offers in its exquisite, lawful unfolding. This is because of compassion. It helps us to come close. In this way, wisdom is developed because there is the ability to experience clearly, free from our hopes and our dreams, free from fears, without filters, without pushing away, without striking out without turning away or ignoring. With compassion, there's a space for all of life to be there, all of life to unfold naturally, to be experienced closely and clearly, as hard as it is sometimes. This is from Agnes Ao. She wrote an article in the Shambhala Sun about Buddhist women, and I love what she says. She said, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace and in so doing, to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. The vividness of an unfiltered life. Do we have the courage to open to that vividness of an unfiltered life? This is what compassion and wisdom asks of us, the vividness of accepting the first noble truth of life. The Buddha said in different ways that unless the first noble truth is open to, which is the truth of suffering, then the end of suffering would not be seen. The first noble truth is dukkha, sacha. Dukkha is suffering. Sacha is the truth. And these two words mean there is the truth of suffering. There is the truth of vulnerability. This is a given in this human realm. This is how it is. The acceptance of that vulnerability to the changing conditions of life The big three of sickness, old age, and death. This is what our practice is all about opening to that vulnerability, opening to that change. I'm grateful to all of our teachers and to the Buddha who did not soft pedal this, who told it like it is, who did not hold back the gravity and depth of this first noble truth because they believed in our capacity to experience the Dhamma to realize liberation in this very life. The Buddha said that the first noble truth needs to be acknowledged, open to, for wisdom to develop. And of course, compassion supports this wisdom. It relaxes the attention because the heart is tender. Tenderness relaxes attention. It relaxes the body. There's less reactivity, very naturally, when this happens. Mindfulness is not interfered with because there's less reactivity. So the power in all of its fullness and force can be with moment-to-moment experience, the power of mindfulness. Mindfulness does its job to reflect with pristine clarity what's happening beneath the layers of conceptual reality. It reflects ultimate reality. It takes the awareness beyond or before the defining lines of what is called me, what is called mine, who we think this is in this body-mind existence. What we call this body, when we look very closely, when mindfulness is really strong, becomes intangible, becomes thin, becomes porous, seen as dissolving, various sensations arising, passing away, endlessly, over and over and over again, giving the message for us to see, for wisdom to grow. Mind is not overlaying, cobbling together any concept of what this body is, whether it's the leg or the head or the arm or the shoulder, not cobbling together a self. It's just this energetic system arising and passing away, these various sensations, hardness, softness, heat, coolness, roughness, smoothness, heaviness, lightness. Sometimes when the sensations arise, the changing nature is recognized at the beginning, sometimes in the middle, sometimes the dissolving nature at the end, sometimes the fullness of it, is seen, is reflected very clearly with mindfulness. This insubstantiality of this body is known very clearly because of this ability to come really close, to be intimate. The clarity, the tenderness, the spaciousness, the closeness The unfolding nature of this level of life in what is called body is seen without any doubt. Everything arising, changing, dissolving in this realm. Nothing to hold on to. In this body, even the decaying nature is seen. Where can we claim anything as me or mine or who I am? It's all changing through the impermanent nature of everything, this insubstantial nature of self is known, or non-self is known. We can't say, because of this uh, changing nature, this dissolving nature of anything, we can't say that there is some place, some thing, some person, some state of mind some anything that can give us lasting satisfaction because there is nothing that can be held on to, that can be clung to. In this realm of what we call body, this is what is known, the changing nature, the not-self nature, the unsatisfactory nature of all of life. And what about the realm of the mind, so powerful, yet so ephemeral as well? There's pleasant experience, there's unpleasant experience, there are neutral feelings, there is perception, there are intentions, there's consciousness or the knowing factor. With great compassion, mindfulness is able to come closer, to reflect clearly how it all appears and disappears faster than the mind can catch up with sometimes. Nothing permanently satisfying. Nothing that's controlling anything. It's all so uncontrollable. Nowhere to be found an enduring entity that we call self, not inside, not outside, not in any interconnection of anything. Only these changing conditions coming together and falling apart, moment by moment by moment, the materiality of the body, the aspects of the mind, feelings, perception, intentions, consciousness, coming together to form a sense of self when we overlay a concept of that. But that's just at the surface, seen deeply in deeper realms. It's not solid. It's not permanent. It's not controllable. This is from the Diamond Sutra. Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning, a flickering flame, a phantom, a dream. And the Buddha said, see all compounded things as being like these. Just the flow of experience and the awareness of it, the breath and the awareness of the breath sensations in the body, and the awareness of those sensations arising, changing, passing away, hearing, tasting, smelling, seeing, those experiences and the knowing of them. That is all, moods of the mind, loving-kindness, anger, joy, sadness coming and going, the thought process as well. Nothing permanent, always changing. Not any self we can pin down in any of that changing nature. Just the elemental experience and the bare attention of it all. The vividness of an unfiltered life seen clearly, deeply, flowing on. So at the elemental level, when there arises the experience of the body, for example, as hardness or softness, expansion or contraction, in a conceptual way we call this the earth element. But it's known as simply hardness and softness, Expansion, contraction, and the knowing of it. It's the same as others experience. This is the universal understanding. This is what connects us all to other beings, to other bodies, to the earth itself, to grandfathers, to grandmothers, to sisters and brothers, to trees to great mountains to another mother like myself in Iraq. Same elements arising and passing away. When there is a heat, varying degrees felt in the body, warmness, coolness, hotness, this is the fire element. It's felt in the body. It's felt in the mind as well. This is a universal element. All beings experience fire element. Nature, in nature, there is fire element. Volcanoes. The women in the hot places of the Philippines, my home birth, they experience this fire element. This connects us deeply at a different level, beyond the level of self, beyond the level of Kamala or Mother even. When there is swaying or jerking, vibration or stiffness, this is the air element. We feel this in the body, swaying, jerking, vibration, stiffness. Feel this in the breath sometimes, This air element is universal. It's not me or mine or who I am. But it connects universally to how how others experience it. It's selfless. It's the great wind of the deserts of the world. The water element binds everything, it coalesces, it coheres, all of these elements together sometimes. Outwardly, it's the tears from our eyes, the heaviness of the body when there's sadness. The tears that flow from my eyes are no different from those that live in India or Africa or anywhere here in these United States. This water element is universal. It's not me or mine or who I am. All of these elements can be known. And when we touch into what goes on more deeply, beyond or before what we call self, what we think we own, what we can con- think we can control in this body, this mind, from this level of experiencing life elementally and knowing the impermanence of it all, knowing the empty nature of self of it all, we experience the vividness of life. It's much fuller, it's deeper. It's not just at the surface, it's not confused, there's much more wisdom, and we touch that deeper place of compassion in us. How can that person that I don't even know, that has tears flowing from their own eyes, how can they be different from this heart that's when there's sadness, there are tears from my own eyes? It opens my heart to compassion. We touch the feeling of safety because we live in this great, great web of interconnectedness. We start living in alignment with the truth instead of fighting it, instead of insisting that there's something in our meditation or in our life that's going to permanently satisfy us. Instead of fighting the fact that we'll be able to make something solid, even a sense of self, we open to what's really true and live in alignment with that. We experience our lives with more understanding, with more wisdom, And on a deeper level, we can say, yes. Hidden from everyday life, there is just this collection of the flow, of changing processes, of these aggregates, of the materiality of the body, of perception, of feelings, of consciousness, of intention. On the level of uh, relativity, there is this body, this way that we have to relate with one another. We have to integrate both this ultimate level and this relative level. We have to live from both understandings. We can't just say it's all empty so our actions and words don't matter. Because we understand wisdom, we understand compassion. And we know that it's really important to be careful with our actions, with our words. As Padma Sambhava says, though my view is as vast as the sky, still my conduct is as refined as barley flour. So we can have this vast view, this deep understanding, and yet understand. With compassion, that it's important to act skillfully, to speak skillfully. So, to end with Kalu Rinpoche, many of you know this. We live in an illusion and the appearance of things, there is a reality, we are that reality. When you understand this, you know that you are nothing. In being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So let's sit for a moment. So let's end with the reflections on the sharing of blessings.